0: learn all about investing in real estate in seattle washington with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to seattle plus syndicated more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes not all of them specific to seattle be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors well good morning and welcome everyone got a pretty exciting class today. I think uh, this is the one, this is like the traditional comparison that you've been waiting for. It is the class about, is it better to buy 20% down rental properties or to invest in the stock market? And we will do this analysis in about 300 US cities. So the idea is, what if we decided to look at if buying 20% down rental properties as an investor, no nomad, no uh, house hacking, no burr, no kind of like uh, fix and flips or anything like that. Just buying traditional 20% down non-owner occupant investment loans on rental properties in that market using that market's kind of median price home and the rents that they would get from those types of properties as quickly as they can. You know, basically when they've saved up enough for a down payment to do that. And in the meantime, they'll be investing in the stock market, just like the stock market people are going to be investing in. And so they'll kind of say, is it is it faster to do these 20% down rentals in order to achieve financial independence and to figure out how much of net worth they have at year 40, which is kind of our cutoff point for doing that. So we'll go look at all those numbers and we'll decide, we'll see once and for all, <laughs> although it's not really once and for all because there's all sorts of variations in these things. But we will see once and for all with this particular set of assumptions, which one is better, which one gets us to financial independence faster, which one gives us a higher net worth, which one's riskier. And so we'll look at a lot of those different things. So I've modeled this out in about 300 and I think it's 305 US cities. And so let's look at it. In both scenarios, whether you're doing 100% in stocks or you're doing, uh, buying up to 10, 20% down rental properties. In both those cases, I assume that this particular person was renting the entire time. They were not buying owner-occupant properties to live in first, and then doing the strategy. And the numbers would change if they decided to buy an owner-occupant property, and then do either all investing in stocks, or then do all buying 20% down Rental properties, up to ten rental properties. The numbers would definitely change because then they'd have an owner-occupant property. It would change a lot of the characteristics of the investment. That that owner-occupant property matters a lot. I'll say it that way, and we'll see that come up time and time again when we do our analysis. Because this is sort of like part of a series of classes where I look at comparing two different strategies and I show you how they do head to head. In case you haven't noticed, that's what I've been doing. You know, about once per week for these live classes, I've been doing a head-to-head comparison of different strategies, and then we publish this eventually to the podcast and put it on the website and stuff like that. So you can see, though, these different comparisons, and, and you will see over time that buying that owner-occupant property has a significant impact on how things perform. And most of the time, it's better. So if you get nothing else from this stuff, look hard at whether you should buy an owner-occupant, or proper, owner-occupant property first in your marketplace. Okay, so... In this case, though, we're talking today about putting 20% down, buying rental properties or investing in stocks. In both of those situations, both those scenarios, they're renting the entire time themselves. They're not moving into a property that they own. Okay, Trying to make it as fair of an apples-to-apples comparison as we can. In the cases where they're putting 20% down, they save up their money until they have 20% down for non-owner-occupied property. And then they repeat that until they have 10 properties 10 rentals in total. Then they stop buying. Any extra money that they have coming in, they stick in the stock market just like the people investing in stocks, except these guys would have 10 rentals at that point. They buy the next property when they've saved up enough money for the down payment, plus any closing costs, plus six months of reserves for their personal expenses, plus six months of reserves for every property that they own so far, so if they only own two, they need six months of reserves for those two. If they own eight, they need to do reserves for all eight. And additionally, they need to be able to qualify for the loan based on a 45% debt-to-income ratio. We don't just give me a, a pass and say you don't need to qualify for a debt-to-income ratio. We do that calculation. So in markets where you have, I don't know, challenging economics, where the prices are really high and rents are not quite that high, and that actually hurts your debt to income ratio because maybe you have negative cash flow on them. Then we need to overcome that if you're really close to your debt to income ratio in order to be able to buy the next one. In cases where buying a property has really good cash flow economics, you know the the amount of the price to rent ratio and your expenses on that property are such that when you buy a property it actually helps your debt to income ratio. Then that actually is probably not a factor. Your your debt to income ratio will be easy to achieve there. Okay, But we do 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 that calculation. So it's important for you to realize that that is a factor in this stuff. And while the 20% down people are saving up to buy their rental properties, they're also investing in the stock market with any extra money they have. So I've assumed that they're taking the extra money that they have and they're investing in, I don't know, some type of index fund or something like that in order to save up their money and get a return on it while they're waiting to buy their property. So they're not significantly handicapped By having this money in some type of really low return thing, while the other people who are doing only stocks have it in some type of really good stock market account. And the people that are investing in stocks, they don't have any property at all. This is just stocks completely. And if you want to see the comparison of this, I have the URL on the screen. Um, I'll try to put it in the show notes. If you're listening to this on a podcast, so you can kind of go in, and tag that. If you're watching the video, you can see it there and type it in. Or just go to the model page. And you can go find the, uh, the the one that says 20% down payments versus stocks. And you can find it that way too. All right. So what does it mean for them to be financially independent? I, I want to talk about this so that you understand like, what triggers someone being financially independent. And this is the same definitions I've been using for people when they're thinking about being financially independent themselves, but this is the mathematical way we determine if someone is financially independent, and it comes from five different sources. I'll cover the three easy ones first. There are three sources that are super easy. It's all the passive income. So passive income from any social security, which we're not modeling in this case, passive income from any annuities that they buy. You can buy an annuity. It's an insurance product. You Basically pay a fee or pay a series of fees in if you're paying monthly or yearly or whatever it is. And then the insurance company will pay out a certain dollar amount each, whatever it is, month or year uh, to you as part of the annuity. So you could buy Annuities. You could have social security, or if you have a pension, those count. Those are the three that we're really not talking about today, but those are three that would contribute to someone being financially independent. The two we're primarily focused on today is number one, net positive cash flow from rental properties. And number two, any invested assets that they have, like assets they have invested in the stock market, as an example, times the safe withdrawal rate. And that gives you, if that number exceeds your expenses, then that means you're financially independent. So either the Net positive cash flow you have coming in from your rentals exceeds your expenses, or your invested assets times your safe withdrawal rate exceeds your expenses, or some combination of those two exceeds your expenses, then you're considered financially independent. So let's say your expenses, and, and the I'll say this too, the expenses in each city vary. So the person living in Mobile, Alabama is earning a different amount than the person living in Los Angeles, California because they need to be able to afford properties in those marketplaces. And someone who typically works in Los Angeles makes more um, on average than someone who works in Mobile. Just kind of looking at the numbers of what income people make in different areas of the country. We kind of adjust for that. And we base it on being able to afford a home in that particular marketplace. Okay. So we adjust those. So that's saying the, if the net positive cash flow from all their rental properties exceeds their expenses so if you're making $10,000 a month you need your cash flow from your rentals after all the expenses like taxes insurance maintenance pmi principal interest mortgage um you know your maintenance your management all the expenses get subtracted your net cash flow has to exceed that $10,000 a month in this example or if you've got whatever it is you know $5 million invested in the stock market and you're times in that by a, you know, a 4% safe withdrawal rate, which I think is what we use for this, then that would be uh, whatever that is per year. 5 million times 4, is that $200,000? So you know they're making in, in excess of what they would need to do in that particular case. If you think about it this way, if you have a million dollars invested in the stock market and you have a 4% safe withdrawal rate, you're making about $4,000 per year that you could safely, and I'm using that in quotes, withdraw from your asset pool with a very low probability of you running out of money. Not saying you can't run out of money depending on how the market does, we don't know how the stock market's going to perform in the future, and I think that's one of the challenges with a lot of this modeling. That's one of the reasons why I like to run Monte Carlo scenarios, but I'm not going to go into that today. But that's one of the things we think about you run Monte Carlo scenarios on all the real estate stuff, and you run Monte Carlo scenarios on all the stock stuff, and you can kind of do them together and see how your risk profile changes for that. But I'm not going there, not today, all right? So The combination of those two need to exceed your expenses in order for you to be considered financially independent. So let's talk about the assumptions. Each city's modeling uses their median home prices and estimated rents on those properties. We did not apply any of the ADH strategies I have to improve cash flow. So these are not like optimized properties. It's not like you went and you found the best of the best of the best deals and you applied all the best kind of practices we have for improving cash flow on all those in order to optimize for whatever your cash flow would be. That's not what we did, okay? So these are sort of like run-of-the-mill, median-ish price properties. You could do a lot better than this, uh, kind of picking your things. And, and also, I, I would say I somewhat handicap stock market. You know, I think some people would argue the stock market has done better than what I used for my assumption, which was 7%. I use 7% per year in the stock market. Some people are like, well, James, that's really low. I mean, the stock market's obviously returned whatever. You, you believe it to be, And I'll, I'll say, you know, I think this is a defensible position, depending on what you're investing in the stock market. But, you know, if you invest in other things, maybe you do better than this. Maybe you do a lot worse. And that's why you could change these assumptions and see how it affects things too. Okay. So each city's modeling uses their median home prices and the estimated rents in those properties. We did not apply any of the ADH strategies to improve cash flow. Just talked about that. The job income, as I mentioned before, it does vary based on what city you're in so that you can afford a property in that marketplace. We didn't want you to be in a marketplace where you make so little that you can't afford a property in that marketplace. But then at the same time, in order to become financially independent, you need your your kind of like assets to overcome your expenses now. So because your income is higher, you have a higher threshold to be considered financially independent. So even though we give them a little bit in higher income in that particular marketplace. We also penalize them a little bit saying that they now need to overcome that number in order to be considered financially independent. So to those that are given more, more is required. Another way of saying that. Okay. Uh, We just started off in every one of the cases, whether they're buying stocks or they're buying 20% down rental properties, everyone started with just enough such that they would have had enough for a 5% down owner-occupant property with some closing costs. In other words, everyone starts with 7% of the price of a property in their marketplace, 5% plus a couple of percentage points for some closing costs. Um, and if, it, if that number is below $10,000, we set a minimum of $10,000. And this is true even though they are not buying an owner-occupant property. But the reason we set it up this way is, we are going to compare this to people that do buy an owner-occupied property. And so I wanted to be close to apples to apples as we could. So they all start with money as if they could go put a down payment down and buy an owner-occupied property, even though in this particular case, they're not. You know, they're, they're 7% of the way toward their 20% down payment in the case where they're buying rentals. And they're 7% of the way in order to um, take that money and invest in stocks. They're not really going to buy a rental property, but they could if we do another strategy where we compare these. Okay. And then the interest rates, if they were going to buy an owner occupant, they'd be about 6.5. In this case, they're not. Um, and they're going to, if they're buying that 20% down properties, we assume the interest rate's about 7%. So it's it's pretty close to where we are today. Although, and I could change these, uh, but right now we are using 7%. Um, and if they change a little bit, we could go through and we could change all of them, and rerun all the scenarios. The challenge is if I do this video now, And you watch the video, if you go to the website for the modeling thing, I may have changed those numbers at some point in the future. And so what you're seeing on the models page may be very different than what we're talking about in this particular presentation, okay? And I told you already before, they're earning 7% in the stock market per year. That's their rate of return. And they're earning that whether they've got a little bit of money in the stock market waiting to save up their down payment to buy rental properties, or they're only buying stocks, they're earning 7% per year. I also modeled this out over 100 years because sometimes I stopped at 60 originally, 60 years. um, And then I was realizing that some people were not financially independent by year 60 and that they were achieving financial independence just after that. And so I was like, well, where do you cut it off? I was like, you know, I'll just go out to 100. People realize they're, you know, if they're 50 years old, they're probably not going to live to be 150, but they can at least see what the modeling looks like going out that far. If you want to see all of my assumptions in detail, you can go to the realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model in order to see that model model all right so let's talk about it i'm looking primarily at two metrics number one is how long did it take them to be financially independent and how much net worth they had so let's talk about how long it takes them to be financially independent first you what you might think oh james you know this real estate stuff is obviously going to do better and it's going to be better in every case Well, you might be surprised to see that the investing in stocks, not buying real estate at all, is better in 75 out of the 305 cities that we tested in. So about 25% of the time, they achieved financial independence faster if they invested in stocks than if they invested in 20% down rental properties. And you're like, what are you talking about? Is that even possible? Yep. In 229 of the cities, 20% down was faster. They achieved financial independence. They got to the point where the income from their invested assets, whether that's net rent, net cash flow on all their rental properties, after all expenses, or and or the um, income that they, the money that they have invested in, in this case, the stock market times the safe withdrawal rate at 4% with the sum of those two whether they're heavily in real estate, they may not even have any stock market stuff or vice versa. But those two actually exceeded their living expenses, the expenses they have in those marketplaces. In 75 cities, it was faster for them to do the stock market. In 229 cities, it was faster for them to put 20% down. And in one city, it didn't matter. It was tied. They achieved financial independence at the exact same month, all right? Now, in the 20% down case... There were 22 cities, 22 out of 305, where they actually did not achieve financial independence by year three by year 100. So over a hundred year period, they never quite got to the point where the cash flow in those properties exceeded their expenses in that city which is pretty interesting, you know? Now again, we're not optimizing these properties. You could do better. And in fact, because you're not having to buy them in your city, you could choose a different city to do this in, city that has better economics, as an example, okay? Or they may have enough net worth in the properties that they bought, where even though the cash flow didn't quite get them to financial independence, they could, in theory, at least sell off some of those properties or all of those properties and convert it to the stock market or convert it to free and clear rental properties and actually have achieved financial independence. We didn't do any of that modeling, although we do that in other scenarios where we go head to head. This is sort of like the basic version. In cases where they invested in stocks only, all of them, all 305 actually achieved financial independence within a 100 year time period. All right. So there were 22 cases where 20% down did not. And there were 305, all of them, achieved it when they did stocks. All right, this chart breaks down how many of the cities achieve financial independence at what time. So this is the low time. So, you know, this is like 100 months. This is like uh, 1200 months over here. The red kind of area is the number of 20% down ones that achieve financial independence there. So for example, you know, at about the 300 month mark, there were about 20 of the cities that achieve financial independence. And you can see that the 20% down ones are spread out I wouldn't say exactly evenly, but relatively evenly over time. Um, kind of like a little bit more in this kind of like two hundred to six hundred range. A lot fewer the later on you go. There are a couple really early ones where you achieve financial independence very very early in those cities. However, the stock market one is very different looking. There's a whole bunch, you know, almost eighty cities that achieve financial independence, you know, just after this, whatever this is, five hundred and fifty month period. And then there's a bunch that kind of achieve it right after that. And then a whole bunch kind of like taper off. So you don't have very many at all the later you go. And so you can see the characteristics of when you achieve financial independence look very different depending on whether you're doing 20% down or you're doing stocks only in those different markets. Like when you're likely to be financially independent, it looks very different. There's a wide range when you put 20% down, there's a kind of like hard left-hand side, lower end boundary for the stock market one, but then it kind of grows, kind of like tapers off pretty rapidly there. And a lot more of them achieve financial independence kind of like in this time period, if you're looking at that, okay? All right, now this chart, this shows you how much better, how much faster investing in stocks is or investing in 20% down is for each individual city. So each one of these dots is a particular city. The the number here on the left-hand side shows you how many months better or worse it is. So here's zero, on zero, these would be the same. So this is the one where it was exactly the same. But if it's greater here, if it's green, it means that the stock market one was better by that many months. So there are times when investing in stocks was almost, I don't know, what is that? 250 months, 20 years better. So there are times when investing in stocks was 20 years faster than investing in 20% down rentals. However, there were times when investing in rental properties, putting 20% down was 20 years better for um, these cities. So there's a wide range, a big difference between these. I'll tell you, it looks just eyeballing it that there are times when investing in 20% down is a lot better, way better than, than it is when you do the, uh, the, then the invest in stocks. And there are fewer times here where they are better than if you invest in stocks. So you can kind of see the number here. Now, this is also on a scale showing you the price of houses in that marketplace, because I'm often asked, James, so is it like the more expensive houses that, where it's better to actually do the stocks, or is it like the cheaper houses, or does it matter? And in this case, I would say it doesn't really matter. There's probably a few more of the ones where 20% down is better where you have cheaper houses. But, and and there's so few data points up here that I, I wouldn't say that it's generally better here. Although there are two data points with really expensive houses where it was better to do stocks. However, there was one here where it was really, really expensive where it was better to put 20% down. So I don't know. I, I think the general trend is maybe a little bit in favor of 20% down rentals over stocks on the lower end, but not by like a ridiculous amount. It's not like it's universally true. There are some over here where you're less than $250,000 for a house where it was still better in order for you to buy, uh, to invest in stocks than it was for you to buy rental properties, okay? All right, so let's talk about net worth. We talked about the speed to getting to financial independence. Now, who has a higher net worth at year 40, whether you invest in 20% down rentals or you invest in stocks? So in 34 cities, a little bit more than 10%, in 34 cities, you have a higher net worth investing at year 40, investing in stocks than investing 20% down in rental properties. However, in 271 cities, you have a higher net worth if you invest in rental properties. So about 90% of the time, you'd be better off from a net worth perspective investing in 20% down rentals. For about 10% of the time, you would have been better off investing in stocks. Which I think surprises a lot of people. They're like, you know real estate, it's always better. It's not always better. I, it's, most of the time it's better, but it's not universally every single time better. Um, and honestly, we're we're sort of handicapping both in some ways, right? We're not picking ideal rental properties. so you could say, well, you're really sort of like giving a the short end of the stick to the 20% down rentals. Yeah, but I'm also not doing crazy aggressive, you know a 12% return per year in the stock market either. So both of them are sort of handicapped. And depending on what actually happens, we won't even know. Like we could predict the future right now, you know, based on some reasonable assumptions about what has happened in the past. But I mean, we could see 17% per year on the stock market. And in that case, the stock market would do probably better than a lot of real estate stuff, provided the real estate does the same as what it's done. Or real estate could go on a tear. I mean, this last year, when interest rates have risen, It's been slowed down quite a bit as we try to get inflation under control. However, going back even before that, the last five years where real estate prices have gone up like crazy, if that growth rate were to continue, yeah, real estate would look amazing. Right. But we're not seeing this like ultra low interest rate environment where we're seeing, you know, three percent, three and a half percent loans on on uh, non-owner occupant properties and, you know, property values going up 10 percent a year and rents rising, you know, almost in line with that. I mean, we're not seeing those things and that is not historically over a very long period of time what has actually happened. So I don't think we could use those numbers and and be and be kind of like uh, reasonable about stuff. To be fair, so we're using very reasonable long-term numbers. I think we're using 3% per year for appreciation. going to give you an idea. We're using current interest rates, current rents. Although I don't, I'm not an expert in every one of these markets. Maybe you go look at my assumptions for your particular city. You're like, you know, James, you're off. You're wrong on these numbers. Okay, fine. You know, reach out to me. Tell me what the right numbers are. We'll rerun them and do it. But it's only going to affect one of the cities. You know, so a lot of these cities are a lot of these cities I, pre, I feel pretty confident in maybe not every one of them. So there you go. Um. So you kind of see there and, and there were no situations where it was exactly the same net worth at year 40. Now this is that same type of chart before where we show you how much better. And instead of showing you how many months better, now it's showing you how many dollars better it was in net worth at year 40 um, broken out by, the price of houses in those marketplaces, the red dots, each dot is a city, by the way, the red dots are the ones where the stock market had a higher net worth and the green dots are the ones where putting 20% down had a higher net worth. And the first thing I'll point out to you is the ones where you put 20% down, there were a lot more cases where your net worth was not just a little bit higher, but a lot higher. So you had a much higher variance, much higher range of how much better these strategies were sometimes putting 20% down was not like $500,000 better. It was like 10000 or I'm sorry, $10 million better. Significantly better. But the red ones, the ones where the stock market was better, those all are relatively small. Relatively small differences better. So you know, they might be better, but it might have only been better by you know, $500,000 as an example. And there are not that many of them as we showed you before. Okay, Now, is this skewed toward higher price houses? Yeah, maybe, maybe a little tiny bit. The higher your priced houses, the better the stock market was than buying the rental properties. Uh, but there are some cases where doing the rental properties, 20% down rental properties, where you're putting, uh, you know, where you had really expensive properties, where those were better too. There's a couple of green dots at very expensive houses as well. Uh, it tends to look, just eyeballing this really roughly, that when you have low-priced houses and you're buying 20% down rentals, you tend to have a higher net worth than if you invest in the stock market. But there are exceptions to that. There's at least one right here where that's probably in the you know dollars $200, to $250,000 range. And there's a whole bunch between 250 and $500,000 where it was better to actually invest in stocks. Okay? All right. There were 21 cases... Where, even with six months of reserves for your personal expenses, six months of reserves for a rental property when you buy a rental property, that the cash flow is so ugly buying rental properties that you ran out of money. And those were all cases where you're buying rental properties. You never ran out of money if you were doing stocks. Okay. Um, and in 284 cities, it, you didn't run out of money in any of those. Okay. But in 21 cities, there were ones where you ran out of money. Now, We did not apply any of the 88 strategies to improve cash flow. We did not cherry pick better deals. Um, If you happen to be in a market where the cash flow is really, 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 really ugly, you don't have to buy in your marketplace. You know, if you're in a city where, you know, every time you buy a property, it's negative $3,000 a month cash flow, maybe you go to a different city. You know, (laughs) that just seems obvious to me. Or maybe you do a different strategy. You don't put 20% down in those cases where you'd have significant negative cash flow because the more you put down, the less negative cash flow you're likely to have. Okay. so there are 21 cities with my assumptions where we did run out of money in this case. And uh, you can go drill down into each individual city to see how they compare and look at your city and see. And this shows you like the ones where you were likely to run out of money. The red dots are the ones where you ran out of money. And it tends to be you have a much more likelihood of running out of money the higher the price point. So sorry for people in California where you have really expensive properties. I bet you, not all of them, but I bet you a lot of them are California. All right, so here's a summary of some things. And we do both average and median here to kind of show you the difference. See, the medians, when you take like, for example, net worth, we take the highest net worth, we take the lowest net worth, we sort them in order, and then we look at the middlemost number. that's median. Or we take the stack of all the different networks, we add them all up, we divide through by the number that we have, and that gives us an average. So when we look at the median, the median net worth at year forty, when you put twenty percent down, is about eight point nine million dollars. Squint really hard; it's about nine million dollars. Okay, so about nine million dollars when you put twenty percent down um, to buy properties for that's the middlemost number uh, uh, at year forty for, for the kind of net worth. Now realize these are in inflated forty years in the future dollars. If we want to think about what that number means in today's dollars, it's about a third of that. So squint really hard, and it's about $3 million in net worth in today's dollars, okay? In other words, $9 million 40 years from now will feel like having $3 million today. So if you have $3 million today, that's about what it will feel like to have $9 million 40 years in the future, just from inflation. So the 20% down has $9 million, 8.9. When you invest only in stocks, the median at year 40 is about $4 million, so it's almost 5 million dollars difference in net worth. Better if you put 20% down. So on median, the middlemost one here was 5 million almost 5 million dollars better if you put 20% down versus if you invested just in stocks. That's a significant difference. And if you look at average, the average for 20% down for net worth was almost 12 million versus just about 4 million for the stocks. So it's almost eight million dollars difference if you look at average. All right. Um, now it's really clear that you didn't buy any properties when you invest in stocks. You have about ten on average when you put twenty percent down, or on median um, nine point eight on average. So there are some cases where you didn't quite get to ten um, with the stock market, with the um, with the average one when you're looking at that. In terms of how long it takes, the months it takes in order to achieve financial independence, like the minimum target monthly income in retirement achieved, that's what MTMR, MTMR, MTMIR, wow, can't even say that, Um, achieved means when you put 20% down, you achieved your financial independence in about 509 months. When you did stocks, you achieved financial independence in about 659 months. So it's about 12 years faster on median, or about 30% faster for you to invest with 20% down than doing stocks. Now, when you look at averages, it's about 25% faster. And a difference of about, well, let's see what that's probably uh, 11 years. So it's 11 years faster for you to do 20% down on average for doing those. Now, as far as risk goes, what's riskier? Well, there are different types of risk, right? There's, when you invest in stocks, you have all the different stock market risks. You have all the different risks associated with investing in companies, in stocks. That's what kind of that's what stocks are, okay? When you invest in real estate, you have all the different risks associated with real estate. You know, market conditions, interest rates, things like that, rents, things like that, okay? Um, now, those are different types of risks just generally. And I'm not gonna try to compare those risks head to head, but there are measurable risks. Like how how risky are you um, in the terms of debt-to-income ratio. Well, when you're doing kind of like your debt-to-income ratio for uh, investing in, um, in, in the 20% down rentals, your debt-to-income ratio is higher. It's more risky for you to invest in the 20% down than to invest in stocks. And the average debt-to-net-worth, um, 47% on average compared to zero, or the average debt-to-account balance, you know, 21, 219.84% to 0%. So in other words, because you're taking on debt when you're buying these 20% down rentals and you're not taking on any debt when you do the um, stock market ones, you will find that you are riskier doing 20% down than if you are not doing 20% down, than if you're not taking on any debt at all. Okay, so in general, it is riskier to put 20% down, right? All right, I think I've been talking about this idea throughout, but median property and rent. You could apply the eighty-eight strategies we have to improve cash flow to improve the numbers for the one that has rentals. We're basically using the median price properties and what rent might be on those properties in each market. You should be able to choose and do better than that. And I do model some of those improvements in the other scenarios that we run or the plan, ones that we plan on doing videos for in the future. So you'll see the impact of that as we go or go look them up now. There are a lot of them are available. Now, if you happen to be an expert in your local marketplace, you look at my assumptions, and you're like, James, these numbers are off. Go ahead and reach out to me and I can change them. And we'll change them and we'll rerun everything. Okay, now I'm not trying to find like the best case, I'm not trying to find the fact that you are a super deal finder and that you're able to find these ridiculously amazing, kind of like a really exceptional deals. What I want to find are deals where the, the typical real estate investor in that marketplace could do those deals. Where any any investor comes in there, they could find a deal like what we're describing. I don't want to do like the you know, if you're like the top 1% of investors, you'll be able to uncover these deals. That's not reasonable. It's not a a reasonable assumption for us modeling this long-term, okay? Now, again, if you were moving into these properties, you'd have to buy into your local marketplace. But you could say, hey, I'm in a marketplace where cash flow is really, really ugly buying here. Maybe I should go look at another market around me or another market out of state, and I could invest in those. We did not model that, even though, we, we would probably choose to do that, right? In a lot of cases, we're looking at a market where we're like, this is really ugly. I don't want to voluntarily take out a property that has negative $3,000 in cash flow. Maybe I'll go put more down, change my strategy, uh, buy properties free and clear, go to a different market. There are all these different things we could do where we're not really limited by doing, by voluntarily doing really bad investing, really unsavory, high negative cash flow investing in that marketplace. So, it could be a lot better than what we're showing if we use some just really basic common sense stuff of changing our strategy or doing something slightly different or applying the strategies to improve cash flow or whatever we're doing there. And then, obviously, investing in stocks is not directly affected by which market you're in. However, it is indirectly affected by. How much you ended up starting with, because if you're in a more expensive market, you end up starting with a little bit more money. The amount you're earning. So if you're earning more in a marketplace, you actually are setting aside more into the stock market investments. How much you're saving and the criteria to be considered financially independent, because if you're in a more expensive market, your expenses are higher. So you need a a higher hurdle to overcome to be considered financially independent. So all those things do factor in. I do take that into account. All right. So in conclusion, in our current market conditions, current prices, current interest rates, current rents in about 300 US markets using what I would refer to as less than ideal median price to rent properties, putting 20% down tends to outperform investing in stocks in terms of net worth and speed to financial independence. The market does matter though. In some markets, investing in stocks is faster, more profitable, and arguably better. Generally, investing in real estate tends to be riskier, Whenever you measure risk with debt, especially, it's best if you look closer at your specific market and apply as many of the ADA cash flow improving strategies as practically possible to improve on your own personal implementation. And you can do that. Just go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model, M O D E L, and you could see your city and go drill down into the, I don't know, we probably have a couple dozen up right now. I'm planning on adding till we get to about 100. Uh, provided the server can handle that load. We'll see how it goes as I really ramp up and do a lot more of these because realize we're not just doing one, we're doing you know 300 every time we add one. So it's uh, it gets very large. So the data sets get very large uh, over time. All right, so that's all I got for you. I hope you enjoyed this presentation. This has been James Orr. Have a great day. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Seattle is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Seattle that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast.